0: And now your host, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and apartment deal syndicator, Jacob Ayers.
1: Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, episode 391. Hey, welcome back. I'm your host, Jacob Ayers. We're inching closer and closer to that 400 episode milestone, and I'm so glad you've been along the journey with me. Today, I'm excited to bring to you today's guest, Mike Sowers. Mike got his start in the painting franchise world back in 2003. He also worked as a loan originating officer before he went on to create his own remodeling company, where he rehabbed over a thousand properties, growing that business to over 50 employees. Eventually Mike made the switch to commercial real estate investing world and never looked back where that's his true passion today. Mike is the host of the Creative Commercial Real Estate Show and author of Creative Real Estate Investing book. He outlines in his book a seven-step process for finding and funding your very first deal. Those seven steps are find, figure, fund, fix, fill, financials, and lastly, our favorite, freedom. So we're going to dive into that framework today, talk about Mike's journey and his story up to this point really exciting one. So stay tuned. Let's go ahead and jump right into this week's episode with Mike Sowers. Mike, hey, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having us. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Mike, tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, how you got started in the world of real estate investing.
2: Sure. Yeah. Currently I'm managing three different companies. One is our primary business. It's investing in commercial real estate. And I rebranded that company about four years ago when I made the full-time transition from residential into commercial. This journey started for me about 16 years ago. Bought my first duplex while I was a college student and then started house hacking after that at the University of Minnesota and just kind of built that up and I was a remodeling contractor, so I actually ran a franchise for College Pearl Painters for a couple of years. And then uh, senior year in college, I started my own remodeling business, and we were doing hail damage restoration. And it's a really cool business. Back then, there wasn't as many people in the game, and it was just an exciting business. You could basically go out into territories that got hit by hail and give away free roofs. And then a lot more people started getting into it. It got a little bit harder to find skilled labor. And I grew that business to 54 employees at the largest point. And I ended up selling that company in 2017. And at that point, I finally thought I had enough money to get into commercial real estate. And it was a little bit harder than I thought it would be. And I realized that it's still very much like an old boys club, right? And people just weren't as open about sharing their secrets as I thought they would be. So I ended up starting my own podcast, the Creative Commercial Real Estate Podcast, just to kind of give people a forum and a reason to open up because calling somebody and be like, hey, let me pick your brain over coffee is a very one-sided proposition. But if I'm like, hey, come on and promote your business and try and generate more students for your program or whatever, and by the way, I'm going to grill you and you're going to give me all your secrets. Pretty cool. So what ended up happening is I started buying some properties and the best thing that ever happened to me is I ran out of money but I still had deals coming in. I was starting to form these systems and I started, I've always been a systems guy. That's what I went to school for. And, and that's how I think I was able to sell a small remodeling business is because I had custom built a software for that business. It basically allowed an 18 year old high school kid to go in and estimate a kitchen remodel in a one sit close in about an hour. And so that was really cool. And I realized that the commercial real estate industry was a little behind. And in particular, the commercial side of things was so far behind on technology versus residential, that there was this huge opportunity for somebody who could come in and apply some technology, build some systems and really do some direct marketing. People are generally lazy. And I hate to say that I'm a commercial real estate broker, but people are generally lazy in the commercial space. They rely so much on their network. And so in a lot of ways, if you're not in that network, you have to really find other ways to generate deals. People are like, how do I get started? And they start calling agents and looking at listed properties. And it's just really not the great way to get started because no broker who has an established client list is really going to give you the time of day. Why would they bring a deal to you? when We have no deal history when all their buddies down at the golf course, they know can close and get paid on the deal. So that's kind of what I was up against. And so I did what I did best. It's how I cut my teeth at College Pro Painters. It's how I cut my teeth selling magazines for a summer with Southwestern. And it's how I built my insurance restoration business is literally getting out there and pounding doors. And so that's what we did. We called property owners, we text them, emailed them, sent them direct mail, did everything we needed to do. And we started getting a lot of property tours and a lot of deals under contract, but I didn't have enough financing to get the deals done. It's particularly the equity financing. So I got denied by a lot of banks on the debt side, and I got denied by a lot of investors on the equity side, but I never gave up. And that's the key, I think, to success in this business is having a strategy, a system, and then grit where you just literally commit to doing it. And you're going to get your face kicked in, your teeth knocked out. But as long as you don't quit, you're going to see success in the long run. And what I learned how to do is structure private partnerships with other people who have money And I figured out I went from being an assisted lunches kid with zero network, zero corporate connections, and this kind of solo dolo remodeling and house flipping contractor who really rebelled against corporate America and decided that I needed to customize my investing strategy to really make that a strong point rather than a detraction. So we started focusing on suburban, multi-tenant office, industrial and apartment type projects And really focusing on that because it's small business owners. That's who your user is. And so I'm bumping shoulders with the guy who wants one or two offices, is the CEO of his own little business and is decisive. I love meeting with those people all day long. And it provides so much more value to me as a person having conversations with winners like that rather than dealing with renters on single family. So once I figured out that I could go out and do one commercial deal and generate five to seven, sometimes even 10,000 plus in recurring revenue from literally one deal. The idea of doing a single family house rental and making two or three hundred bucks a month cash flow just didn't really get me excited. And everybody and their grandma was going after apartments. That's kind of the sexy blonde at the bar that everybody wants. And so I'm over here digging in the other corner of the bar looking for, <laughs> you know, my wife. And we found her. And it these suburban multi-tenant assets that really nobody wants, and kind of finding a discrepancy between what everybody else thinks the risk is and what the real risk is, because there's multiple different ways that you can have risk in real estate. And I got super anal about this. I'm like, what are all the different ways? So I actually made a diagram in my book, which if you haven't picked it up, I would highly recommend doing that. It's available on Amazon. And I give a free PDF away for people on my website as well. Maybe we can talk about that later, but yeah, there's a diagram in there where I actually diagrammed out risk in real estate. And it's like, hey, if you do this, then this can happen, and then that leads you to this, and that creates risk. There's really two types of key risk, long-term risk and short-term risk. Long-term risk is the risk that you are over-invested into a property, and you either lose money for your investors, or worst-case scenario is can't make your mortgage payments and or make your lender hole. That happens from people that go out and they pay top dollar for really nice, pretty properties that are fully rented. And then the market turns and then all of a sudden the value drops a little bit, but they never created any value. So it's eating into real cash that they put into the deal versus going and doing deals where they're beat up, mismanaged, you know, seller got no documents, taking cash. His accounting method is if he's got more in his checking account at the end of the month than he started, then he's a thumbs up kind of guy those are the people that I buy properties from. They're rarely ever professionally listed. I don't want a professionally listed property because then it's going to be at market price. So we find the, the problem children and we solve the problem, which is normally renovation, a lease up, and then a property management takeover. And that's the fixed fill and financial steps in my seven steps to freedom system that we teach in the book. The short-term risk is that you screw it up in the operation piece, which is you underestimated your renovation costs or your time frame goes way out of whack, or you have construction problems and can't finish. You overestimated what you could rent the building for or the occupancy you could achieve, or you just hire a bad company that doesn't know how to market your spaces properly and does cell phone camera style photos, puts it online, puts a sign out front. And then we call that the post and pray method, or you try and manage your own properties using QuickBooks or something like that and not really having a real property management system and a really professional company that's trained on how to do value-add deals, which there's a lot of good management companies out there, but there's very few that know how to do value-add deals. You have to be willing to pay more and structure bonuses for them Really incentivize them. Like, think about it. Why would A, as a management company, your goal is to generate the highest management fees? Why would you take property B that's generating half the rent and has 10 times the work over property A that's nice and pretty, generating twice the rent and has very little work? So you have to think about how you're compensating them. If you're just doing the standard kind of 5% of revenue, then maybe people aren't getting as excited or you're not giving them the motivation they need to really move the needle for you on the project.
1: Man. What a, probably one of the greatest opening kind of lines in this podcast, Mike, so much to unpack there, but. How little do you know the tables have turned and you find yourself on the other end of the mic today than you once were sharing your wisdom and your insight in the industry with listeners today. So thank you for that. I want to kind of go back to the point in time when you found yourself transitioning from residential to commercial real estate. How long had you been investing in the residential side of things? What did your portfolio look like? And then kind of talk about the mental aspect of making that transition. What kind of clicked in your head and how did you kind of get the traction to get into the uh, commercial real estate space?
2: Sure. As you mentioned earlier, I've rehabbed over a thousand projects and that includes projects I've remodeled that I had no ownership in, but we did a whole lot of flip. I've wholesaled a ton of projects and we had a fair amount of rentals. When I was making the transition, really there were three key myths that I believed in my head that turned out were completely based in these were false narratives that I believed from the media and from other brokers and investors who were in the commercial game. Those three myths were that there's no good deals out there anymore, that it's really hard to evaluate commercial properties, and that you need hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy commercial real estate. And the truth of the matter is, and I do a webinar on these exact three topics. The truth of the matter is, it's very easy to generate leads. We generate anywhere from 30 to 50 leads from off-market motivated sellers every single month. You just need to have a good direct marketing system. Now, I happen to have spent a ridiculous amount of money custom building a software that does all this for me, but you can go do this with individual vendors out there. It's just going to be a little bit more of a headache and take some more time, but you can definitely do it. That's how we started doing it. So again, that's just direct marketing, right? We talked about this a little bit ago, but if you're doing direct marketing to property owners, you can generate a ton of deals and they're quite easy. Once you get your messaging, your timing, and your list locked in, those are the three key pieces. On the second piece, the myth about, you know, it's really hard to evaluate deals. That's because they haven't figured out their magic multiple. In my book, I teach people the magic multiple. Think of it like this, okay? Okay. If properties in your area are selling for a hundred bucks a square foot and they rent for $10 a square foot net to the landlord, so net lease, then the multiple that the market is paying is 10, okay? Or the cap rate is 0.10 or 10%. So the market multiple is nothing more than the inverse of the market cap rate. So if the market cap rate's 5%, the market multiple is 20. What that means is that the market's paying 20 times the NOI for stabilized properties, what the magic multiple is, is you take the market multiple and then you adjust it for your desired profit margin. So if the market multiple is 20, but you desire to make a 30% margin, then you can only pay 14 times the NOI. Because when you pay 14 times the NOI, let's say the NOI is 100 grand, you pay 1.4 million, the market's willing to pay you 2 million for that same NOI, that's where your margin comes in. So what you got to do is figure out your magic multiple. Mine's 9.625 for most projects in my area. It's going to be based on my local market cap rate and my desired profit margin. So here's how easy it is for me to evaluate a deal. I go out and I figure out what the stabilized NOI is. Let's say that's 200,000. I multiply by my magic multiple and that's the max I can be all in. And then from there, I just deduct my cost to renovate, lease it up. And maybe any holding costs if I have negative cash flow during the operating period. And that's how I back into my max allowable cash offer or the makeup. So that's what I teach in my book in my online course. It's so simple. I think people overcomplicate it. You got these programs like Argus and these really high power dynamic spreadsheets. Don't get me wrong, I'm a recovering spreadsheet addict. <laughs> I'm a finance major. One of the key guys on our team was a finance major. We love all the pivot tables and get jazzed up about spreadsheets and stuff, but spreadsheets have some serious limitations. One, if you break a formula somewhere, you can really screw up big. And that's why we built out a deal analyzer tool within our software suite that kept it simple. And what I found is that most traditional analysis methods really only work for stabilized properties. Like If you've got a vacant building that's generating no income, it actually has a negative NOI. How can you apply a cap rate with right. a meaningful value? You can't. So what you have to do is kind of project what the stabilized NOI would be in the future and translate that to a future value and then kind of work backwards by deducting your costs and your desired profit to back into like what you can pay for it today.
1: Now, somebody right there, Mike, might say, well, then I'm buying on projections, right? Not actuals. And then people get held up or maybe, you know, kill the deal because of that. What's your rebuttal there? And how do you analyze those types of deals?
2: Then I would say to those people that they've been reading every other book that's out there, because that's what every other book teaches you. Look at some of the best-selling books. I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus, but they'll literally tell you that you should never value property based on projections. And those people just don't live in the value-add world. It's the only way to value properties in the value-add world. I mean, we just went through an example. How do you value a property that has a negative NOI? Obviously, it has some value. They're not going to pay you to take (laughs) the Right. Unless, of course, you have a major environmental problem or a fire damage deal where they're going to give you a dollar and then they keep the insurance claim. I love those deals, by the way. (laughs) But think about it like this, okay? If your plan is to flip the property or flip it to yourself by essentially refinancing it and selling Mm -hmm. it to yourself, if you will, Mm -hmm. at the end of the project, all we're doing is projecting that future appraised or sale value. And then I'm deducting my cost to get it there. There's four key costs: cost to fix it, cost to fill it, cost to hold on to it during that one or two or three year period, and then the cost to close on the buy and the sell side. When you deduct all of that, you really have your break-even purchase price. Like if it's going to sell for two million, and it's going to take five hundred grand to get there, at one and a half million, if you pay that, you're going to break even. Right. So then I just go, well, I want to make three hundred grand. I'll pay you one point two, and then they counter me at one point five. And I say, well, I'll give you the 1.5, but I need a 90% contract for deed on a 10 year term at 3% interest. How does that sound? And in that way, I can give them their price. And now I'm not making the margin, but what I do is I convert it from an equity play where I'm going to have the equity growth to a cash flow play because I can achieve the same cash flow as I would pay in 1.2 and financing it traditionally as I would pay in 1.5. But then it's gotta be a long-term hold because you have to benefit from that below market rate, favorable seller financing for a long enough period of time to offset how much you're overpaying for the property.
1: And the other year. advantage of that is you're coming out of pocket with less cash to do this 10% down, 90% seller carry.
2: Yeah, yep, exactly. And what that translates to is your weighted average cost of capital goes down. Because do the math, okay? Let's say your cost of debt, including principal payments, is 6.5%, you know, $1,000 borrowed or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then let's say your cost of equity is 15 or even 20% is how much it costs you to raise equity. And that number is going to be higher on your first few deals, right? Because people inherently are going to take more risk investing with you. right? But as you do more deals and have a proven track record, you can slowly kind of bring down your preferred returns and splits that you're giving up on your deals. Mm So let's say you're doing a 75% debt and 25% equity. You would just take 25% times the 15% rate, and then you would add 75% times the 6.5% loan constant. You add all that together, and you count with your weighted average cost of capital constant, which might be like 8.5%. And that number there will basically tell you your cost of debt and equity combined as a percentage of total dollars raised. So I think ours is like 7.6%. So for every million I raise, it costs me $76,000 per year in debt and equity. Well, if they give me favorable seller financing, now I'm taking 90% at the debt rate, which is a much lower rate than the equity. So my weighted average cost of capital might go down to, let's say, 5%. And so now I can pay a lot more and still have 5% of that higher number come out to $76,000. Basically, the way you'd figure it out is take set the same seventy six thousand that it was going to cost you every year, divide by five percent now, and that's the new price you can pay.
1: You can think about this, Mike, in another way. You know, there are scenarios where you go out and get seller financing at zero down. Sometimes that might be a very distressed property, or it might be a distressed property owner. I've done this, in fact, myself. Zeroed down. I think it's like four and a half percent interest on a fifteen year loan I've got on one of my small apartment buildings, and. Yeah, you look at that and you're like, okay, well, my cost of capital is very low, right? And then it's a cash flow play. So you've got, you know, like you said, what's the metric you term that? Uh,
2: I call it the WAC, W A C C C, weighted average cost of capital constant.
1: Okay. Weighted average cost of capital constant. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, that's essentially what it is, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's your cost of funds as a percentage of the total dollars you raise.
1: Okay. Yeah. I love it. So, Mike, my- Going back to these myths, you've uh, dispelled a couple myths here, but somebody might be thinking, OK, well, Mike's coming to this. He's got a renovation rehab background. He's got a construction background. The guy clearly knows his numbers. He's got all these metrics. He's a finance guy. I'm already feeling like, you know, behind the eight ball compared to where this guy's at. What would you say to that? Those people who are thinking maybe they don't have what you have at this moment.
2: Yeah, that's a fair question. I think you're onto something there because we are hardwired as humans to compare ourselves against other people. Mm -hmm. It's something that is hardwired in us to help us survive. And so first you have to adopt the mindset of looking at other people that are farther along from you. And instead of doing what we're naturally hardwired to do, which is feel shitty about ourselves, is look at them and change your mindset to like, okay, what are they doing and how can I do the same things to get there? And actually, using it as a thing to spring you into action, rather than a thing to paralyze you in fear.
1: Yeah, no, I like that kind of reframing your mindset, right? To think like, okay, if this guy can do it, then there's something that he knows, or I can learn from him. Instead of thinking like, okay, I'll just never catch up, right? Hundred percent. And you
2: got to look at it and be like, well, this is also dude that's been doing it for sixteen, going on seventeen years. Okay, and even at that, it just really doesn't matter. You can't evaluate your success by comparing yourself to others. What you really ought to be doing is concerned about how much you're learning versus how much you're earning and being focused on how much did I learn this month and comparing how smart you are now to how smart you were last month. But it goes beyond the learning. You got to apply this stuff. Like 90% of the learning in this game only happens when you actually get a deal under contract, go through and buy it. Like This sounds crazy, but I would tell people like, go buy a property and break even on it. And you're going to get yourself a $100,000 college education. Like, don't be so afraid that like you're going to lose money on a property. Like, don't be stupid and go like bet it all on why. Get a system, get a strategy, adopt somebody else's strategy and system that's proven, and then get a mentor or a coach or whatever. But enlist somebody to help you through your first deal and then go pull the trigger on something. Go execute on that strategy.
1: And Mike, so many people, myself included, you know, don't want to feel dumb. Don't want to look dumb. Don't want to sound stupid. And so they stay in their comfort zone, right? They don't push themselves outside of their comfort zone. And I've heard this quote, and I'm probably going to butcher it. But it's like, if you look back on your past self, one, three, five years ago, and you're not embarrassed about that person, then you're not growing enough. And I know that rings true in my own life. I look at like previous episodes of this podcast, for example, or just where I was three years ago. I'm like, oh, it's like cringeworthy. I don't even like listening to myself, right? So if you're not like in that position, you're probably not growing and pushing yourself enough.
2: Yeah, man. One of my favorite quotes is like that life is just one long lesson in humility.
1: Yeah, I and love it. Having
2: that. I think when you live your life in gratitude and humility, it insulates your heart against that. Jealousy, I guess, is one of the terms that you're really getting at is that core. Yeah, like, right? Wow, they have it. I'm kind of jealous that they can mm-hmm. do this and I can't. And when you're like, man, I'm just so grateful to have the opportunity to even listen to this person. I'm so grateful for what I already do have. And I believe when you sow the seed of gratitude that God's going to reap the harvest in your life, but you got to take action on that. Set a vision for what you want your designer life to look like what's important to you. And then back into what are the steps that I need to take and create a plan, an investor action plan. It's one of the first things I do with new franchisees and coaching students of mine is like, dude, what's your residual income? What's it like Write out a five page thing, like the perfect day in your life, because when you can visualize it, create a plan to get there and back into like, okay, I want 20 grand a month in recurring revenue. That means I need to do X amount of deals. I'm going to take this split here. And then from there, I got to do this number of closings to get that number of closings. I got to make X offers, then just keep working up the funnel to how many offers, then how many property tours, how many leads you got. And then ultimately, how many pieces of direct mail or calls do you need to make and then break and then say, how fast do you want to get there? Three years. Okay. Then you need to do 25 calls a day, three days a week. And you're going to get there and then stay on track and have somebody to be a deal coach and a accountability coach. Those are kind of the two key coaches you should enlist is a deal coach and an accountability coach.
1: Yeah. And I found in my personal life, even like an accountability group of peers, you know, that, that does the same trick as well. Right. Because that accountability component is just, it's almost, you would think it's being accountable to somebody else, but it's you holding yourself accountable to yourself in front of others. Right.
2: thousand percent.
1: Yeah. Well, Mike, in your book, I want to dig into just a little bit. That is commercial real estate investing. If you'll hold it up there for the guests to see, if you're listening to this on YouTube, commercial real estate investing, a step-by-step guide to finding and funding your first deal. You talk about a seven-step process. Will you kind of pack that and outline it for us?
2: Yeah. I always loved alliteration. so And I used to write poetry, still do from time to time. So I came up with steps that I'll start with F. So here's the seven steps to freedom. You got to go find a deal, figure Mm -hmm. out what to pay, fund it using debt and equity partners, then you close on it, and then you fix it up, fill the vacancies, drive the financials, and then you refinance or sell to free up your capital, your time, and your
1: profit. I love it. It's so simple when you break it down like that. That is like the framework for your life cycle of every deal, right?
2: None of these concepts are brand new, except for maybe the magic multiple and a couple other things that we throw into our book. What is new is how I've assembled them into a step-by-step roadmap with homework along the way. Look, this book didn't start off as a book. It started off as my business plan so that I could train other people in my company to replace myself. And the best thing that has come out of this book is forcing me to think through my processes because one thing that I found is it's one thing to do something. It's another thing to be able to explain it succinctly to a group of people. It's an entirely different universe to write it out and then actually edit it and go through the rounds and rounds of revisions. I mean, so it forced me to really uncover some inefficiencies that we had in our process. I've been doing boot camps for years on this stuff. And then I went to write it out and I was like, man. That's actually, honestly, where I kind of uncovered that we needed a software. I was like thinking of all the different ways we did everything. And I was like, how am I explaining this to somebody? Like, okay, go sign up for these 13 services. I had 13 tabs open in my Chrome browser and like four software programs open on my computer one day. And I was like, dude, there's got to be a better way. So I set out on a 90-day journey to find a software that did everything commercial real estate from direct marketing to analysis, to funding, to due diligence, on to closing and I literally couldn't find anything. There were a few candidates that came close, but they were more or less specific to residential, and they really were not multi-tier relational databases. What I mean by that is you couldn't have one contact record related to multiple properties or one deal related to multiple contacts. It was like a single-tier, basically a glorified spreadsheet. And what you really need in this business is to be able to have one set of properties and then a whole set of contacts where you can relate one owner to seven properties or one property to eight owners and vice versa. And so that's where we just decided since we couldn't find it that we were going to build it.
1: And so you've built this commercial investment, what'd you call it like investment management software? Yeah.
2: So we have a registered trademark on, it's called CRE tools. And it is the only end-to-end commercial real estate-specific software solution available out there, but I don't sell it. I wasn't trying to build a software as a service, although that would be probably a multi-seven-figure business pretty quickly because everybody wants to get their hands on it. But I like to keep that for me and my team because... I'm also selling franchises in all major markets right now. And that's one of the key things that my franchisees get. We literally plug them in and uh, they're generating leads on day one. They can analyze them, literally click a button to merge all the field data to an offer or a lease document or whatever. I have a mail merge feature built into that. And then I have a funding module where then it creates like sources and uses. They can pick their splits. Are they doing a preferred return? All the different assumptions. They pick all this stuff and it models everything out. And then they literally click a button and merge it all into a lender pitch deck or an investor pitch deck. It's really slick. So it just takes our entire process and makes it like 5% of the work.
1: And what kind of franchise is this, Mike? Is this for the residential side of the business or the commercial, no, commercial. side?
2: commercial. Okay. Yeah. We are the
1: only commercial real
2: estate investing franchise on planet earth right now. Our closest competitor is Homevestors. They dabble in commercial, but their primary market is residential properties. Now, if you are a HomeVestors owner, you know, in the franchise disclosure document, it does allow you to do commercial, but it's not commercial specific. They also don't have a proprietary software like we have to actually do all this. I know a couple HomeVestors franchisees and they're basically still using like spreadsheets and stuff like that. So,
1: HomeVestors are the We Buy Ugly Houses brand, right? Yeah. Yes.
2: Yeah, it's a really cool franchise. I mean, most people don't know that that's a franchise, but it's a really cool franchise concept. I look up to it so much that in many ways, we aspire to grow to their size. They have 1,300 locations. I think maybe even more than that now. But that's essentially what we do. We set people up in business to be a commercial real estate investing company, but we don't own any of the properties. They own the properties. We teach them how to do it, and we give them the tools and the support to go do it. And then they pay us a royalty when they transact on properties.
1: Fantastic! I love it. It's a really cool concept. Well, I want to touch on one other thing you talk about in the book, and you alluded to it earlier. That's your risk diagram. What are some common things that you see people miscalculating about risk?
2: Yeah, let me see if I can find it here. The biggest thing, I think you touched on it earlier, but the biggest struggle that I see most first timers making is figuring out how much to what the scope of work should be how to measure, and how to estimate renovation costs. I'll tell you, you are nuts if you're going out looking at a property and then having a bunch of contractors out there to bid things so that you can have some numbers to make an offer. You're crazy. This is our risk in real estate. It's on page 27 of the book. Okay, I'd recommend you check that out. But here's what I have in there is the top seven mistakes. Well, this is how to lose money in real estate. So some of these are outside of your control, like market fundamentals change. That's outside of your control. How do you insulate against that? You only do value add deals. You don't go buy stabilized properties at top dollar. Mm -hmm. The second one is you get a bad tenant. How do you insulate against that is you specialize in one asset class, do really quality leases and do thorough background searches. It also comes down to having a really comprehensive marketing program so that you have more tenants to choose from. Instead of having your stuff sit there for six months and you're so desperate, you just put anybody in there. Right. You're almost afraid to do a background check because you're so desperate to get them in there. Bad property management. And I can go on down the list, but bad property management, bad analysis is probably the biggest one. It's the bad analysis on the front end. You make your money when you buy. You know, everybody knows that. Partnership dispute, making sure that you're not being lazy about going through all of the ins and outs of the partnership. Look, this is a marriage, make no mistake about it. And you better have a prenuptial agreement, but beyond the legal contract, because look, a contract can't save a deal from going south. What can is really upfront, thorough communication with somebody. Because if everybody's on the same page and accepts it mentally, can't tell you how many times people rely on legal contracts to bail them out when the problems are there. But a much better proactive strategy is to really make sure everybody has a meeting of the mind before you get into that. Because when you have a meeting of the minds, then the contracts never even come into play because everybody's on the same page from the get-go.
1: Yeah. No, I love it. It's a good analogy looking at it like a marriage, right? I mean, this is a long-term partnership. This is a serious, you have to be on the same page with so many different aspects from your investment strategy to your business plan and more. So you definitely agree.
2: And then the last two are if your funding falls through. So if you can't get financing, debt or equity, or this one's the classic, horrible marketing plan. See, look, this game's about flipping cards over. You got to keep flipping until you get an ace. Here's what happens is people look at a three, then they look at a five, then they look at a four, and they arrive at the conclusion that marriage is a bad idea. And it's like, well, no, marriage isn't a bad idea. You just had a bad relationship. You had the wrong person. So maybe marriage is the right idea. You just need to flip over more cards or get more clear about what it is that you're looking for and never stop flipping until you find the ace. Like on my last marketing campaign, I generated 90 leads, got eight properties under contract, and we crushed it. But normally on a typical marketing campaign, we would get maybe one or two properties under contract for like 100 leads. Mm -hmm. So You're flipping over two cards, two decks worth of cards with seven of the aces removed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You got to sort a long ways through to find that one ace, right?
2: Yeah. And so that's what ends up happening is people just, it is a mentally challenging game, commercial real estate, because the numbers are bigger. You do less deals and they hurt a lot more when one falls through mentally. And so you have to find a way to get through that. It's not as transactional like when you're flipping houses or wholesaling. It's like, had that deal fell through, no big deal because you have other income coming in. You can work a deal for six or 12 months, have that be the only deal you worked on that year, and then it falls through. Or even worse is something comes up and your numbers don't work anymore and the seller's not willing to renegotiate. And now you have to make a decision to cancel and leave your 30 grand in due diligence money on the table. Or go forward on a deal that you're going to overpay for, and you know you're going to overpay for it.
1: No, yeah, that's a good point. Talking about these risks, Mike, I think the... I don't know. Silver lining to me, looking at these risks is every one of them can be solved with the proper amount of education, right? For the most part. I mean, yeah, there's things outside of your control, like you mentioned, like market shifts and et cetera, but there's also still things you can do. So the biggest risk is not knowing what risks lie ahead. And it's one of those like catch 22. You don't know what you don't know, but you can't know everything right before you put one foot in front of the other and get started.
2: Yeah, for sure. That's very wise advice.
1: Well, Mike, hey, we could go on and on for hours and hours about this stuff. Obviously, you've written an entire book on it, and it's not just something you developed overnight. This is from 17 plus years of experience condensed down into this one book. So I recommend everybody listening, go check out this book. That is Commercial Real Estate Investing. You can find it on Amazon and any place you can find books, I'm sure. But Mike, as we're wrapping up here, we end every one of our episodes with a lightning round, just a quick series of questions we fire at you. Are you up for it? All right. The first question is, what was your biggest hurdle getting started investing in real estate? And then what'd you do to overcome that?
2: Well, in real estate, that would be all the way back to when I was 19. (laughs) Back then, there were no hurdles. They were giving loans to anybody who had a pulse. (laughs) (laughs) The biggest hurdle was, I think, trying to figure out how much to pay for a property.
1: Mm -hmm. And then what'd you do to figure that out? Was it just education, analyzing bills? Yeah, I started
2: started going to seminars and stuff like that. And then I paid, way overpaid for a bunch of properties and lost my ass. And that was the best learning lesson that ever happened to me.
1: (laughs) I love it. Mike, do you have a personal habit that contributes to your success?
2: I have a lot of different habits. One's a cold shower in the morning. That's probably my favorite. I hit the cold shower. Now look, I'm not crazy. I don't do the whole thing as a cold shower. I just like to dial it down right at the end. It gets me going. I have my positive aspirations. First thing that happens uh, in the mornings, I'm just grateful to God for another day. And then really taking the time to think through important things and reflect is something that always pays dividends for us and our family in the long run. And just really making sure that we're deliberate every single day about how we're living our lives.
1: Yeah, no, I love that. That's good advice. Mike, do you have an online resource you find valuable in your day-to-day? And I'm kind of interested to hear your answer on this one specifically.
2: Yeah, I have a bunch of online resources that I use. I like learning from other people. I love watching other people's real estate ads and going and taking other people's programs. I spend more on education than most people ever would. I mean, I've spent multiple six figures on education and coaching programs and mentorships and stuff like that. And people are like, (laughs) that's a whole separate topic. But I don't, here's what I don't get how are people gonna spend 50 grand on a four-year education and you may or may not actually be able to use it to make money but people struggle to pay ten or twenty five thousand dollars for a program that's gonna literally put you in a position to make seven figures on a deal
1: and so or that's 25 dollars cool. for an amazon book right like sometimes yeah. I hear people like I don't know that book's forty dollars I'm like 40 bucks like <laughs> yeah
2: yeah think of the <laughs> amount of time and energy some people put into that and look not all education's good right you got to read and watch and listen all these things through a filter to arrive at your own conclusion. But one of the mistakes I see people making is kind of, I call it the squirrel effect where they go to this seminar and now I'm wholesale and residential. And next month I'm doing uh, land deals. And then the following month I'm uh, doing apartment syndication. And then the next month I'm doing a mini storage, you know, and it's just like, dude, pick a strategy and stick with it and for like a year and then reevaluate. Like (laughs) you got to stick with something like stay in your lane. You're never going to get good at something if you don't stick with it. You know, it's like the people, like I grew up playing like two or three sports a year, but I was never like a B minus player
1: at all. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Definitely good advice. Mike, outside of your own book, what book would you recommend to the listeners and why?
2: Uh, There's a few. I tend to like The One Minute Manager from Ken Blanchard. It's a short read to help you think through situational leadership, which is really taking you through the learning curve on specific tasks that you need to learn. Uh, I think it's a really good book for anybody that's in the business community.
1: Fantastic. We'll link that book in the show notes for audience members to check out, of course, along with yours, Mike. Last question in the lightning round, if you were to go back and give advice to your 20-year-old self to get started investing in real estate, what would you tell 20-year-old Mike, even though it sounds like you bought your first property at 19?
2: That's great because we never debunked my third myth. And that third myth is you don't need hundreds of thousands of dollars to wait to get into commercial. You can do it today with zero connections. What you do is you call property owners. And when they say, no, they don't want to sell you their building, you convert them to a potential investor. That's how you raise capital. Call property owners. Nope, my deal's cash flowing. Great. Well, I'll tell you what, I do a lot of this off-market marketing. When I get my next deal, do you want me to reach out to you looking for more deals? And you literally acquire a list of 50 or 100 people who already own real estate. You know they have money. Their property's performing well. Who better to reach out to the next time you got a deal under contract? to do a webinar and get your deal funded. And if I had known that when I was 18, I would have been funding multi-million dollar deals back then because that alone is the one secret that can really unlock it. People are like, well, I know I want to raise money, but how do I actually do it? Well, there it is. Go get your property owners list and you call them and you target them as investors when they say they won't sell you their building.
1: Honestly, that is a gold nugget to take out of the show right there, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, I've called property owners and been told no hundreds, if not thousands of times. And I've never once thought, hey, maybe I should ask this person if they're interested in investing with me. I don't know why I haven't thought of that.
2: Dude, it's the easy switch. It's like, hey, uh, Mr. Jones, Mike Sowers, Commercial Investors Group, just following up on that letter I sent you. Did you get that in the mail? Okay, great. Well, uh, I, I just wanted to check in. You know, Can we make you an offer on this? Have you ever thought about selling? Nope. I'm all good. I'm all set. Oh, well, that's awesome. Sounds like it's cash flow and great for you then. Yeah, it's cash flow and really good, Mike. Thanks a lot for reaching out. Well, hey, I tell you what, I do a lot of off market deals. And as you know, I'm the real deal. I reached out to you and I'm seeing a lot of properties. And I was just wondering, you know, you're doing so well here. Are you ever interested in having me reach out when I have another opportunity and at least run it by you? And if they say yes, that's the end of your sales pitch. You put them on a list. And then when you have a real deal, You put together a webinar, invite all 30 or 100 of those people that you got, and there's your list. You get 50 grand a pop out of them, and there's your million bucks.
1: Man, I love it. Mike, what a mic drop moment right there. I mean, for me, that was the golden nugget takeaway from this episode of all the great stuff you just dropped. So ladies and gentlemen, like I said, just make sure to take that away. Mike, this has been an awesome, high energy, high impactful conversation. We could go hours and hours. I, I don't want it to end, but let's go ahead and wrap up. If people want to learn more about what you're doing, reach out to you, connect with you, learn about your apartment investing model, where's the best place for them to find you?
2: Yeah, our podcast, the Creative Commercial Real Estate Podcast, I'd say pick up a copy of the book. You can also check out our YouTube channel. It's under Commercial Investors Group. Beyond that, I have three links I'd like to give you. If you have 100,000 plus and you want to learn about the franchise opportunity, just go to discoverycallwithmike.com and book a one-on-one call with me. If you don't have a 100000 but you still want to potentially get involved, I got a webinar that walks you through the three myths in detail. And at the end, I'm going to give you a discount code to get into our mastery program. That's a weekly Q&A with me. That's a phenomenal deal. And we're doing that. You would not believe what I'm doing that for. And that's a marketing program for me. i pretty much lose money on the program, but I view it more as a, it is a Group of people that I'm grooming to eventually become franchisees. So my ultimate goal is to just get as many people. It's a high volume item instead of a high ticket item for me. So if you're interested in that, go check out the webinar. It's at commercialinvestingmastery.com/webinar. And then the third link is, as I promised, the free PDF of the book. That's slash book I'll give you a free PDF of the book, and uh, you can download that in there. Although I would highly recommend if you're anything like me you're going to be much more likely to actually read the book if you get yourself a real version. It is a quite lengthy book, but it's nice to have the free PDF as well. So uh, check that stuff out. And uh, we would invite you to explore those two ways to get involved with our company. We're going to be here whether or not you reach out to me, but uh, we're making ourselves available if you want to reach out and see how I can help you grow your business. Thanks so much for having me on the show today.
1: Mike, thanks so much. We'll link all those resources in the show notes for our audience members to check out. Author of Commercial Real Estate Investing, host of the Creative Commercial Real Estate Show, Mike Sowers. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. All right. Thanks so much, man. Take care. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right, that wraps up this week's episode with our guest, Mike Sowers. Hey, what a high-energy, high-impact, quick-hitting episode in conversation with Mike. He's an awesome guy, super interesting. I actually had the chance to pick up his book, Commercial Real Estate Investing, A Step-by-Step Guide to Finding and Funding Your First Deal. I personally got the hardback from Amazon. It was like $10 more than the paperback, but this is a seriously nice book. It's big. It's bulky. It's 400 pages super rigid. So I've already dove into it. Awesome read so far. If you're going to pick it up on Amazon, I highly recommend the hardback over the paperback. But hey, that's just me. You might be an audible person. But anyways, as always, for all of those resources we mentioned in today's show, you can find those in the show notes at www.jacobairs.com or by tapping on your home screen on your phone as you're most likely listening to this. Well, hey, until next week, engineer the lifestyle you want
0: you've been listening to the real estate way to wealth and freedom podcast providing you actionable content to build your real estate empire nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice please consult an appropriate tax legal real estate financial or business professional for personal advice the opinions of guests are their own information is not guaranteed all investment strategies have a potential for profit or loss the host is operating on behalf of the real estate way to wealth and freedom llc exclusively